Welcome to Beyond Toast, Episode 6, Sign Sealed Delivered. Welcome to Beyond Toast. I'm Mike Weston, and this is the podcast where Toastmasters talk about their two greatest passions, food and language. And I'd like to start this week's episode with a reading. Perhaps the World Ends Here, by Joy Harjo. The world begins at a kitchen table. No matter what, we must eat to live. The gifts of earth are brought and prepared, set on the table. So it has been since creation, and it will go on. We chase chickens or dogs away from it. Babies teeth at the corners. They scrape their knees under it. It is here that children are given instructions on what it means to be human. We make men at it. We make women. At this table we gossip, recall enemies and the ghosts of lovers. Our dreams drink coffee with us as they put our arms around our children. They laugh with us at our poor, falling-down selves and as we put ourselves back together once again at the table. This table has been a house in the rain, an umbrella in the sun. Wars have begun and ended at this table. It is a place to hide in the shadow of terror, a place to celebrate the terrible victory. We have given birth on this table and have prepared our parents for burial here. At this table we sing with joy, with sorrow. We pray of suffering and remorse, we give thanks. Perhaps the world will end at the kitchen table, while we are laughing and crying, eating of the last sweet bite. By placing the kitchen table at the centre of all human endeavour, it positions it, and by extension food, as central to everything that we do. But who's central to this episode? We've got an exciting guest this week. I'd like to introduce John David Carman. Hi Mike, how are you? I'm very well, thanks very much for being a guest. That's not a problem. Pleased to be here, pleased to be here. Fantastic. So, Tell us something about yourself. Sure. So my name is John, or John David Carmen is the full personal brand name. I guess I can say two things, really. By trade, I'm a product manager, so I work for a food company called Gusto, who sends you as a customer all of the fresh ingredients in a box to cook nice, lovely meals. And I lead the, the team that's responsible for all of the supply chain digital capability. How do we make sure that we get that box to our customers in the best way? So that's kind of by trade, and I've been working in IT and technology for pretty much my whole career. By side passion, food, I think that is a really key thing for me in my life, which is why I work for a food company more than anything. I think that's kind of why we're talking a bit today, really, about kind of the passion for food. Absolutely. I imagine in the lockdown, working for something like Gusto, the pressure must have increased massively. More people joining up to those sort of services and the need to get in difficult supply chains, food out the door as fast as you can. Yeah, absolutely. It's been a really interesting thing to kind of observe. The kind of the, you think about like the hierarchy of needs and kind of like sustenance is something that's it's always kind of just been a base need that's met by and large across society. Now, obviously, there's, there's places in the world where food is more of a consideration, but by and large, we've been used as a society to kind of easy access to food, and then 
Q lockdown and Q a panic buying finanza of let's go get lots of toilet roll, let's go and buy all of the food off the shelf. Online grocery subsequently saw a significant increase in demand and that, that kind of hierarchy of needs of everybody needs to have their food is really compounded with a trend in industry of heavy purchasing online because we haven't been able to get out to supermarkets. So across the board, we've seen a, a huge increase in the demand for, for services, specifically services that satisfy food online. And there's some quite big trends in industry now of that looking like that's going to remain as well. So it's been incredibly busy and and some incredibly complex problems to solve in the supply chain about how do you suddenly overnight scale very quickly to be able to sell, sell, to, to fulfill customers' needs. I'm with one of the competition who I won't name. I'll give goose to the plug in this episode. I mean, it has been a godsend for me just knowing that I have at least four meals a week that I don't have to worry about and will be there and I can rely on and then I've got a bit of freedom to do what else with the rest of the week. It's just, I love these sort of services. I think they're an absolute godsend. And also the fact that they encourage you to try new ingredients. I mean, there are things I would never have come across if it didn't turn up in the box and go, I've no idea what to do with this, but it can't kill me because it's here. So yeah, this is definitely a wave of the future that I'm behind. Still making up my mind about Zoom and teleconferencing, <laughs> but definitely kind of food boxes are the way forward. Yeah, I think adjusting to to life working from home is is interesting. I think the quote of the year so far is, you're on mute. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I think people are going to have that tattooed somewhere after we get out of lockdown. Absolutely. So speaking of not being mute, what, what drew you towards Toastmasters? Yeah, it's been one of those things that's been in the peripheral for, you know, a while. I've enjoyed public speaking, but have always been, like, terrified of doing it it's it's an odd thing so once i get up and i start speaking and i start delivering content be be it a best man speech or actually you know more more formal things for work i've always had that kind of shaky sweaty adrenaline but have really enjoyed it it's kind of one of those things i've I've known been there as a group you can join into and thought maybe i'll dip into that i've known a friend that's gone and done it and thought it's kind of there but maybe but it's not for me and then a, a colleague joined and kind of was singing Toastmasters praises and singing the West London speakers who are the group that I'm part of praises said hey you should really come along and, and give us a go it's really helped and then I discovered the pathways and thought actually this really fits with my development of growing into leading a, a growing team and actually having that need to be able to give a clear concise kind of narrative a clear message be able to sell a set of visions tell a story about that vision and really, I saw it kind of lined up with my personal development. And it was an opportunity to, to meet new people. Testament to Toastmasters, you and I talking today. So yeah, I've been with that group for a couple of months now, all virtual. So I haven't yet experienced the full in-person Toastmasters experience, but have benefited from the, the community that it, that it comes with. Yeah, I think you've started off well then, because you've started off on Zoom. So you're, you're not going in with any preconceived ideas about having an audience and then having that ripped away from you. So when you actually get back in front of people again, that'll be a great experience. Be able to move from all the skills used on Zoom about, you know, eye contact and all that and turn it into something kind of far more physical and in people's faces when you get back in there. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. I, I actually find myself being able to talk to large groups either people I know or people I don't know through Zoom a lot better and the nerves go away because I'm in my comfortable environment and you're seeing people through a screen and I think the challenge will be making sure that you can build on that confidence and thinking about your pace and thinking about you know, your enunciation and, and all of the good things that we're taught in an environment where actually you're on a stage or you know in a, in a room with 
people. I think the interaction is going to be different. So I, I hope that I can continue to, to build on that and it will be a good experience to learn how to read the room in person as opposed to read talking heads <laughs> for an hour. <laughs> yeah, that will definitely be a transition. And speaking of transitions, let's move on to our first segment, which is food memories. So it's that reaching into one's own mind and dragging out that memory that's just is stuck so firmly there about food for good reasons and for bad. So, so John, what's your food memory? first Toastmasters icebreaker actually all around what I call desert island dishes so it was a play on desert island discs about um, you know what are the kind of the key standout meals throughout my life I can remember and that was my my way of introducing myself in, in a passion for, for food and trying to get a hook that was interesting for the audience beyond this is who I am and this is what I've done with my, my career because I talk about that all the time and it's it's not interesting for, for people I've never met so yeah, I did it around food. And there's a couple of kind of really key meals that came out to me. One was as a kid eating kind of cod and parsley sauce, you know, microwavable and not really enjoying it, but, you know, knowing that I had to eat it. And that was, you know, on reflection, that's because of maybe not having as much money as, as a family when I was younger. All the way through to kind of really extravagant meals where, you know, I celebrated my 30th birthday. I think for me, I'll, I'll talk about that one, which was Casimir in Bristol's Michelin star restaurant. My, my parents took myself and my partner to, to this restaurant to celebrate my 30th birthday. And it was kind of one of those experiences that you don't forget. You can have a good meal in a restaurant, then you can have a good meal in a restaurant. And this was one of those good meals. It was from start to finish. We were sat right by the kitchen. We got, we got a tour of the kitchen. When we went in there, I could see them preparing everything. Each member of the, the kitchen team had a, a a particular thing they worked on for the whole meal so you know, there was there was a lady that was only making the starter and there was a gentleman that was only making one of the amuse bouche courses in between this whole meal just was start to finish it was an experience it was incredible everything tasted amazing and it's one of those things that you, you leave from going that was that was very special and i'm going to treasure that in the memories that came with that so yeah for me it was casimir bristol on my 30th birthday you know, 10, 11 courses of amazingness. Yes, you can't beat one of those fantastic banquets when you just start bringing out all sorts of different small tasting little things. Your palate's taken from left to right to centre, up, down, all over the place, and it's like a journey without leaving the table. You sort of see why this Michelin star business has caught on. It's, I think it might be onto something. Yeah, it's crazy how much the Michelin Guide has evolved over time. Now, traditionally, it always was really your classic fine dining restaurant and that was where it was assessed for not only the food but the ambiance in in the restaurant the service the wine you know all at the full hog dining without by richard thomas while ambling down the boulevard i spied a swanky canopy as member of the avant-garde the classy bistro suited me when greeted by the maitre d i nonchalantly said just one he smiled and nodded graciously my gourmand venture had begun as soon as seated, promptly pounced, a waiter dressed in grey and pink. My name is Jacques, the man announced, and asked what I prefer to drink. I ordered an aperitif, and proffered menu then perused. In panic mode, I thought, good grief, it's all in French, I'm so confused. 
When Jacques returned with easy air, I asked what he would recommend. When he advised the bill of fare, my gaze did then the room attend. A masterpiece of elegance, so understated and refined. No chandeliers nor opulence, artistic taste and chic combined. Came appetizers, quite a few, and tiny salads, each unique. With wines and cheeses right on cue, t'was gourmet dining at its peak. For entrees they were perfect meats, with succulence beyond compare, then followed some exotic sweets, and coffee quite extraordinaire. While savouring a fine cigar, I said their chef deserved to win. For haute cuisine, the best by far, another star from Michelin. When mammoth check was given me, I calmly said I could not pay. Though penniless you must agree, you've gained a customer today was booted roughly out the door, with expletives obscene and rude, and gutter-prone a vow I swore, that for assault I'd have them sued. I did, however, leave a tip, on seventh race next afternoon, that Jacques should into savings dip, and bet it all on silver spoon. I was in Singapore last year, and they have a Michelin staff street food restaurant so you don't get all of the like the fine dining experience you you just get the incredible food and you have to think like how good does that food have to be that it can outweigh all of the amazing service and i mean it was incredible right but it's just i think it's really amazing kind of how like food's evolved and how michelin guide has evolved with it well that's it because i mean the criticism was always that it was very much keen on classic french and it wouldn't look beyond that but you're right it has moved on with the years and and definitely embracing the global culture of food and yet singapore because singapore and malaysia food capital of the world as far as i'm concerned and i'm, I'm partially saying that because my partner's malaysian so <laughs> but yeah i mean yeah, the food there is absolutely amazing and they understand what street food and food courts are that's something that britain can only dream of oh uh, yeah yeah absolutely i mean have you, have you visited Singapore? Oh, yes. Yeah, d- d- Satay Street for me was, you know, number, I think it's number seven, and we got recommended it. And you walk up that and everyone's going, come try our satay, try our satay, and you get to number seven, and it's, that's satay. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, I, I remember when I sort of went back to Malaysia for, for the first time, my partner's father took us off to where he grew up and where there was this kind of satay stall that had been there for something like 40 years, making the same satay again and again. And I just, I think we had a competition of who could eat the most satay. I don't think I've been as filled with satay since because I think I got something like, I got something like 12 sticks and felt pretty much ill. He was on to 16 before he started slowing down, so. Yeah, it is absolutely a key part of the culture. But as as you said with your, your food memory there, you know, it's about family, it's about the shared experience, it's about all these joyous things. But that does lead us on to the times when we don't have the ability to reach out to family, sometimes when we don't have the ability to get ourselves some, some nice food or some proper food, we turn to comfort food. So what would be the comfort food that you would turn to in this, of these difficult situations? I think comfort foods, it's a really interesting one because... It really does have that ability to just make you feel good, right? That's I mean, why it's called comfort food, I guess. But for me, it's it's, it's a dish called hammy, eggy, cheesy beanie. And when I was young, living in the same flat that the cod and parsley sauce used to materialise in once upon a balloon moon, there was a, a cafe up the road called The Cavity. It was an amazing name because it was underneath a dentist. So genius branding. Love it. And this cafe served this dish called hammy, eggy, cheesy beanie exactly what it says on the tin so it was a layer of bread with a piece of ham and then baked beans grated cheese melted on top and then a fried egg i mean it's it's all your food groups covered in one and it's just an incredible kind of comfort food that you can recreate at any time 
so yeah, if I'm feeling blue, hungover, in need of just something quick uh, or something just you know, nice and uh, sustenance to, to the body, Hamiaga Cheesy Bean is probably the one. I mean, it sounds absolutely fantastic, and I have to say, it's got the best name ever. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just <laughs> tells you what tells you what you're going to get. Not exactly what it says on the tin. Yeah, <laughs> it's exactly. fantastic. No, no misconceptions. Hamiaga Cheesy Beanie. Oh, fantastic. Down at the Greasy Spoon Cafe by Paul Lester. There are those who dream their lives away, down at the Greasy Spoon Cafe, where the tea's like mud the spoon stands up in, and the coffee leads to an early coffin. Herein, with my nostalgia for smells, I'd happily get high in all things fried. For what's on offer here's rasher than bacon, there's always some ingredient to egg you on. Oh, ketchup smeared like blood across the meal, that's something undefined but ready to congeal. Oh, cholesterol clogged up stuff, but then who cares, when you can die far sooner climbing up the stairs. So what if the cutlery here's less than clean, at least the servings are never mean. Hell fiends might say it's much like hell, but the greasy spoon cafe suits me well. I love that tolerated tramp who sits all day with a mug of tea for which you'll never pay, and the bag lady whose past is all her wealth, who spends all night here talking to herself. I love the rough daubed edges that convey, squalor, that's the greasy spoon cafe, the stodge, the leftovers and the fat, the gristle and rind fit only for the cat. And, of course, it is the grease, the fame, of which lends the place its memorable name. It coats the walls, floats on all you drink, it lubricates the mind and helps you think. It smothers all you chance to eat, in pools it gathers at your feet, when you come and dream your life away, down at the Greasy Spoon Café. And hopefully we can balance out some of that grease with Mike's Eat of the Week. When I first conceived of this segment, I had visualised myself haunting food courts and wandering around the supermarket in search of exciting ingredients and new taste sensations on which to report. Thanks to the continuing pandemic, that idea has unfortunately fallen by the wayside. And instead I find myself rifling through my collection of printouts and photocopies like some frenzied food archaeologist. And it is one such time-worn parchment covered in the evidence of many preparations of times past that I turn to now. Namely, cold Asian noodle salad. Being Scottish, I don't cope well with heat, and on warm days, one of the first things to go is my appetite for hot food. But even so, I approach the idea of cold noodles with trepidation. While growing up, my mother had instilled in me an aversion towards cooled food, and even today I approach leftovers with a certain amount of distaste, and generally aim to clear my plate. So, when I first made this dish, my expectations were that the first bite would be cold and slimy and greasy. But fortunately, I couldn't have been farther from the truth, as it was crisp and crunchy with the flavours of ginger and garlic cut through with a taste of lime, bringing out the sweetness of the tomatoes and peppers, and capped with a natural richness coming from the nuttiness of the sesame oil and cashew nuts. Indeed, the very state of the poor printout testifies to it taking its position amongst the pantheon of my summer reliables. And now we're moving on to 
our fantasy meal for four segment. I'm going to ask John if he could have a fantastic, no-holds-barred meal with three guests. Who would they be? Anyone, living or dead, from past, present or future? Where would you go and what would you eat? Yeah, so this is, this is probably going to be quite a niche selection of people. One that's probably highly classic and that everybody gives it an answer down to, to, to a particular love of a certain type of music for me. I'm a wall-to-wall Apple fan, so it would have to be Steve Jobs, which I realise is kind of just hyper-cliched answer, but definitely Steve Jobs. He was a visionary product person. The technology we use today is driven from his mind. No holds barred. It'd have to be Steve Jobs. Secondly, as aside from food and as aside from working in tech, You'll see off camera, there's a series of vinyl turntables. I'm, I'm big into mixing music and particular genre of music, drum and bass. Andy C is like the figurehead of the drum and bass movement. He would have to be on, on the list of, of people that I'd like to have at my, my fancy table. And I think for my third person, it'd have to be probably my grand, rest of, rest of her soul. She left us a long time ago but was always a firm believer in me and always remember her making amazing roast dinners. So I think, yeah, Steve Jobs, Andy C and, and my grand, odd mix, but that would probably be the, the, the four people that I'd, I'd like to sit with. I think that's a fantastic mix. Something for everyone. Something very, very personal. Something very, very aspirational. Something very, very educational. I mean, that I can't think of a better selection myself. I should really start keeping score because I think this is definitely the second or third time that Steve Jobs <laughs> has got his invite. And my memory of him is he was a fairly skinny man, so he was obviously not getting these invites. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I'm talking as if I know him, right? I've, I've enough reading. By all accounts, as a person, wasn't a particularly nice. You know, he's a very hard leader, drove people very, very hard. There's enough biographies that talk about him just not being pleasant, rest his soul. We should always be nice, but as a visionary in the technology space and what he stood for and what he unlocked and what he's given us, I think possibly outweighs some of the, I'd love to quiz his mind on how he approached the confidence of setting Apple on a direction that was going to be completely different and change the way as customers we interact with technology. I think you've got to judge people in their totality. No one is without blame of some description. Steve Jobs arguably has probably done some sort of things that we would look at and think could have done that sort of slightly more empathically but has definitely changed the world for the better in a lot of other ways so you've got your three guests where would you go where would i go well i would say back to casimir but i don't want to overdo that because yeah, that would negate the amazingness of it and oversaturate it so where would i go do you know, for the fun of it, I think I'd go back to the cavity, assuming it's still open, and introduce everybody to ham, egg, and cheesy beanie, because that, I think, would be a nice, warm, <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice, warm environment for everybody to get to know each other and, and bond over comfort food. There'd be no, no pretense, just uh, quizzing and, and understanding kind of who each other is and kind of what they stand for and, and building a nice family vibe for that meal. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. I think that, that is the perfect choice. Yes. <laughs> You know, something with no pretensions, just to clear the ground and say exactly what the discussion would be. Fantastic. Exactly. Plus, I'd also quite like to see my grand eating a ham, egg, and cheesy beanie. So. <laughs> Unfortunately, as with any dinner party, there is always one guest who wanders into that forbidden zone and talks about the three subjects that cannot be talked about at any light dinner party. That is 
politics, religion or sex. Unfortunately, fates have chosen you. You have to choose one of these subjects to talk about. Which would it be? And, and why would you talk about it? Okay, so I wouldn't talk about sex. What were your grands there? That would be what, really what weird. What were grands being there? <laughs> That's, yeah, no, nobody needs to know. <laughs> um, I, think, I think religion would be an interesting forbidden topic probably to talk about because it generates the most generates a lot of the negativity in the world. It also generates a lot of positivity for, for people in the world, depending on, on your beliefs. And I think it'd be really interesting to get a spectrum of people who, you know, my fantasy list are complete, worlds apart and completely different. And I think religion would be an interesting topic to talk about, to get different generational views and views on people that are very scientifically driven versus, you know, my, my grand who was very kind of heavy in, into her faith. So I think that'd be an interesting forbidden topic to, to, to bring up and get different viewpoints from across the spectrum. Yeah, I think that's, that's a good choice. I mean, I say you do have a, quite a breadth of opinions there. And again, I mean, like anything else in life, it's a philosophy and it's how that philosophy is used. There's nothing wrong with it per se. It's the, the implementation of those ideas. And I think it would be interesting seeing how other people might reflect on that around uh, their ham, eggy, cheesy beanie. <laughs> Jack, exactly. I think might be the, the world's greatest leveller. Yeah, hey, if that's going to bring peace across, across different religions, let's push it. I mean, I, I can obviously off the top of my head see one problem straight off the bat, but let's, let's, let's maybe move on. I mean, of course, yeah. <laughs> we have wandered into the Forbidden Zone. That cannot be allowed. We are the bad guest. We are obviously forced out of the party and are finding ourselves cast out into the night. We need to do something to make ourselves feel good about ourselves. And that is going to be finding one of those guilty pleasures. So, what is the guilty pleasure you would turn to, John? What is my guilty pleasure? So, Taylor Swift. (laughs) is the guilty pleasure although I'm not sure it's too guilty anymore I think it's just a pleasure I I took my girlfriend to see her in concert in London two years ago back when we could do fun things like that a couple of hundred quid Wembley ticket get there begrudging that it's going to cost all this money and uh, I think I enjoyed it more than my girlfriend enjoyed it um so yeah so I think any liveness to to a party or a nice hammy cheesy beanie dinner yeah Taylor Swift in the background probably would be my guilty pleasure excellent I absolutely see that and obviously now is definitely a good time to be Returning to to Taylor. If you're anything like me, by Taylor Swift. If you're anything like me, you bite your nails and laugh when you're nervous. You promise people the world because that's what they want from you. You like giving them what they want, but darling, you need to stop. If you're anything like me, you knock on wood every time you make plans. You cross your fingers, hold your breath, wish on lucky numbers and eyelashes. Your superstitions were the lone survivors of the shipwreck. Rest in peace to your naive bravado. If life gets too good now, darling, it scares you. If you're anything like me, you never wanted to lock your door. Your secret garden gate or your diary drawer didn't want to face the you you don't know anymore for fear she was much better before. But darling, now you have to. If you're anything like me, there's a justice system in your head for names you'll never speak again and you make your ruthless rulings. Every new enemy turns to steel, they become the bars that confine you in your own little golden prison cell. But darling, this is where you meet yourself. 
If you're anything like me, you've grown to hate your pride, to love your thighs, and no amount of friends at twenty-five will fill the empty seats at the lunch tables of your past, the teams that pick you last. But darling, you keep trying. If you're anything like me, you couldn't recognise the face of your love until they stripped you of your shiny paint, threw your victory flag away, and you saw the ones who wanted you anyway. Darling, later on, you will thank your stars for that frightful day. If you're anything like me, I'm sorry. But darling, it's going to be okay. Thank you very much, John. So, as we're coming to the close-out of the episode, just is there anything you'd want to promote or going to make the world more aware of? Given this is a non-work one, I won't plug work, but I will really encourage anybody that's thinking about wanting to improve their public speaking or wanting to meet new people and get invited on podcasts and just improve yourself. Toastmasters is a great organisation to to really push um, and I'd I'd heavily promote anybody that's really thinking about those things to experience it. And you can join more easily than ever now, I think, via Zoom. So you can check it out, check different groups out. And then when we are allowed to meet back in person, there'll be hopefully lots of new Toastmasters joining in-person meetings. Fantastic. I was also going to ask, I really enjoyed your piece on Medium. And I was wondering, is this something you'll be doing more of, a bit more writing, food writing? Yeah, so I, I actually shamelessly stole the idea from Andrea, who's a colleague who introduced me to, to Toastmasters. He's converted a lot of his speeches on situational leadership and feedback into blog posts about how he's gone through his Toastmasters journey. So that's kind of where the idea came from of, of then converting my speeches into posts. But I, I'm thinking more and more that I'm going to try and approach my all of my subsequent Toastmasters speeches around the hook of food. So although I'm using Toastmasters as a platform to build my leadership capabilities in setting direction within the context of my role, I'm going to try and tie it all back to food because I've kind of often had in the back of my thoughts, I'd love to be a food journalist, that'd just be the best job in the world, get paid to go and eat. Turns out you need to have like quite a background in journalism to to kind of break into that market. But if I can do it as a bit of a a side enjoyment, as well as building my skills in speech writing and and writing in general and toastmastering, I'm going to do it. So yes, in short, I think I'm going to continue to try and write more about food and I'm going to continue to publish each one of my speeches as a blog post and maybe adapt it or maybe just use it word for word from the speech. But yes. Excellent. Well, I shall definitely include a link to your face on Medium in the show notes. And really, this is the end of the episode. So, John, thank you so much for being a guest. I've really appreciated your insights into food and for giving us the time to come on and talk about your memories and the great work you're doing and keeping people fed and healthy. Absolutely. It's a bit, actually, honestly, being completely my pleasure. So really happy to support and help and all the best with the rest of the podcast. It's been great listening to it. And if there's another product I'll promote, it's listening to the podcast. So yeah, thank you very much, Mike. Thank you, John. Thanks for listening. And if you want to support the podcast, please rate and review us wherever you find us on the internet. We're presently on Acast and Apple. And I'd love to receive any feedback or comments by email via info at beyondtoast.uk or through Twitter where you can find me at beyond underscore toast underscore UK and as ever if you've enjoyed the poems please do consider checking out the rest of the poet's work links are available in the show notes so that's all for this week's episode and I do hope you'll join us again for next week where we have another guest bye bye for now
And now, a special reading in memory of Edwin Morgan. The Loch Ness Monster Song by Edwin Morgan Bloop. 